I was just thinking of an old song that we used to sing. Uh, the lyric went something like, I could search throughout eternity long and still uh, never find anyone quite like you. And uh, there's so much uh, for us to know about uh, the Lord Jesus. There was an article uh, in the Wall Street Journal not too long ago uh, reporting on uh, facts that were released to area hospitals from the New York Department of Health, uh, notifying that the first recorded case of a uh, transmitted HIV virus through a donor uh, of a kidney. Uh, the, the recipient received uh, the kidney, but he also received uh, the HIV virus. And uh, hospital spokesman said that although the hospital followed acceptable protocols in initially screening the donor, apparently the a uh, person became infected after the screening and before the surgery. Uh, so their recommendation is that they, they should have better screening uh, closer to the time of surgery. I was thinking about that. Uh, what, was, what was meant to save a life really has infected a life. And I was just thinking about how that really all of us have been infected with the disease. And that disease will lead to death. The Bible says the soul that sins shall surely die. And uh, no matter how we've tried to uh, find the fountain of youth or reverse the effects of aging or change the facts, there's, there's, there's no one that can change the inevitability that, that death will happen to every single one of us. There is death at work <clears throat> excuse me, in us, <clears throat> and that's the disease of sin. But in the mercy of God, God's prescribed a, a remedy for that death, and it's found in the person of his son, the Lamb of God, perfect and pure, um, completely fulfilling the righteous requirements of God. Jesus Christ passed the acid test of not only being a suitable donor, but of being the perfect donor. He went to the cross, took our sin, and in this transaction of substitution, he imparts to us, he donates to us his righteousness. And in the process, we are treated as though we were Jesus with all of his achievements and all of his accomplishments. The disease has a cure, and it's Christ. And I think in the gospel of Isaiah, as we've been talking over the last several weeks, Isaiah talks about this specifically. By, by his bleeding stripes, we are healed. By his wounds, we are healed. We want to pick up in verse 6 of Isaiah 53, as we've been looking at this for the last three weeks now. It says, we all like sheep have gone astray. That, that's, that's the disease. That's the sin that has affected us. It's, it's a rebellion. It's, it's a selfishness. The, the essence of sin is self for self. And so all we like sheep have gone astray. Each have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God has laid upon him what we deserve. We sang about it a little while ago. He died for those that are undeserving. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet, we did, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before his shear is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Twice in that one verse it says Jesus didn't respond. And we know that so well in the Gospels. When he was questioned by Herod, the Bible says that he answered him not a word. That before Caiaphas, he, 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 he did not respond to defend himself until he was put under an oath 
to adjure us by the, by the living God, said the, the high priest. Tell us, are you the Son of God? Are you the Messiah? And he said, I am, and you will see the Son of God coming again in the clouds of glory. But in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, verse 8 says, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Who can speak of his descendants, that is, his offspring, his children? For he was cut off from the land of the living, and for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. For the transgression, not for his transgressions, but for the transgression of God's people, Jesus was smitten. The the very name Jesus means he shall save his people from their sins. So in part one, we, we began by looking at what Isaiah called the man of sorrows, described the man of sorrows as one who was so disfigured, so, so marred beyond that of human recognition. And we said we, we start at the cross because the cross is the center of gravity for both time and space. It's the most epic event in human history. There will never be a more epic event than all of human history than the cross and all that, that preceded the, the cross. I want you to think about this with me. The crime of the ages was the display of our sinfulness, of man's depravity, but it was also the opportunity for God to display his inflexible justice and his incredible love and mercy in the person of his son. In part two, I said that God not only used the nation of Israel's unbelief, he designed it, he purposed it, that that the rejection of the Son of God would be the very pathway for the Son of God to go to the cross. His rejection would be the means by which he would bring salvation to the world. Even the high priest said it's expedient that one man should die for, this, for the nation, for the good of the nation. And he didn't know what he was speaking, but he was speaking beyond himself when he made that statement. The unattractiveness of Jesus, the, the, the un comeliness of Jesus, the ordinariness of Jesus was what God used to bring about the rejection of the Messiah, the one that they had longed for and waited. His unassuming, humble, meek character was nothing that the world considers to be heroic. That's their estimation. But in infinite love, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God, the justice of God for us as a vicarious substitute and the sacrifice for sins. He didn't have the looks. He didn't have the money. He didn't have the connections. He didn't have all the things that the world considers as being worthy of praise. But he had this, the obedience of his father's heart in mind and the love of his bride-to-be. Let me remind you of something that, I, uh, that uh, Charles Spurgeon said. I said this last week. I think it bears repeating again. It's up on the screen, I believe. It says, you shall measure the height of his love if it ever be measured or if it be ever measured by the depth of his grief, if that can ever be known. What a great statement that is. That the way in which we measure the height of the love of Christ is by understanding, if it's at all possible, the depth of his grief, the measuring stick, the measuring tape, for the love of God is the grief that Jesus experienced at the cross. So we dare this morning to try to get a better understanding of what is incomprehensible today with the help of the Holy Spirit. 
So would you just join me one more time in prayer? Holy Spirit, would you please open up our eyes, open up our understanding. We want to see Jesus in his glory and in, and in the suffering of the men of sorrows that you have exalted at the right hand of God. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Here's a question I want to ask and answer this morning in two parts. Here's here's, here's the question. What could be worse than the physical pain of the cross? What could possibly be worse than crucifixion? What could possibly be worse than torture and death upon the cross? I believe the answer is found in two parts. The worst or worse than the pain of the cross, I believe, was the shame of the cross. Worse than the pain of the cross. Worse than the physical pain of the cross was the shame of the cross because the cross had everything to do with shame and disgrace. See, we, we, we really have a hard time understanding that in the 21st century, but, 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 but the cross was all about re- the reproach and the shame that was associated with one who would be crucified. It was the symbol of degradation and disgust. It was repugnant and obscene. The cross was far more than a means of execution. It was the means by which you shamed your enemy. Crucifixion was designed to do more than kill a man. It was purposed to humiliate a man. The cross was intended more to, than to break a man's body. It was intended to crush a man's soul and spirit. There's more effective ways of execution. John the Baptist was beheaded. James was killed with the edge of the sword. Uh, Stephen was, was, was stoned to death. There's, there's more efficient ways to bring about a person's execution, but the cross was meant and designed to humiliate and to disgrace. It was a, it was a device of, of humiliation. Crucifixion was always public. The more visible the place, the better was the, was, the, was the place for crucifixion. So many times it was up on a hill or it was at a crossroads. And so to magnify or to intensify the shame, it was public so that everybody could see. Victims were usually crucified naked. Whether Jesus was, was naked or not, it, you know, anybody's guess at this point, you know, some say that, that Jewish sensitivities would have, would have demanded that there was a loincloth about his body. But there was such animosity and hatred for Jesus by the religious leaders that it's hard to think that they would have even extended even the slightest courtesy to Jesus. What we know is this, is that he was stripped of his garments. The soldiers gambled for that. That's very clear. It was prophetically announced in Psalm chapter 22, about a thousand years before the event took place. Adam's disobedience brought about shame and disgrace to Adam and to us as the human race. His shame and disgrace was brought about by his obedience of the Lord Jesus. Under the Mosaic law, there were lambs that were slain for the benefit of sinners. But under the reign of grace, the shepherd was slain for the benefit of sinful lambs. Think about it. The cross was physically excruciating. It was violent. But so was the crushing of a human spirit. And so I say that worse than the pain of the cross was the shame of the cross. Historians 
say that one of the reasons why they, they look at uh, cultured literature back in the day and they say, they say that because it was hard, a crucifixion was hardly mentioned in, in their refined literature, that that's the reason why it was probably seldom done. But, but that is not a sufficient explanation. In fact, it's more believed that the reason why they didn't mention it in their literary cultured writings is because the artist or the writer didn't want to defile his work by bringing up such an obscene issue such as crucifixion. In Greek theater, uh, many times it wasn't uncommon that the hero or the heroine was subject to crucifixion, but they never were crucified. They were always delivered or rescued, and they, were all, they, they never died. And, and that's why there's such a paradox about, or, or uh, an oxymoron about the term crucified Messiah. Messiah crucified. It, just, it, it, it is, it is illogical to the natural mind as two and two is ten. It was totally ludicrous. And so in the Greek mind, it was, it was stupid superstition. In Jewish thought, the idea of somebody hanging upon a tree or hanging upon a cross would be that God had cursed that person and therefore it was God who was punishing that person. Probably the reason why Paul raged or Saul of Tarsus raged so violently against those that were in the church was this issue of the shame of the cross. I mean, it wasn't so much that he was trying to preserve the, 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 the Mosaic law or the temple, that, that, that was, any of those things were in danger, but rather it was because the doctrine or the teaching by believers that the Son of God who was manifest in the flesh, was crucified on a, tr- on a cross. That, in Paul's mind, was, was not only obscene, it was, it was blasphemous. And anyone believing that was worthy of death. In New York City, there's a ministry called Chosen People Ministries. Mitch Glazer is one of the founders, president of that ministry. He writes about Isaiah 53 and said that this was the first passage that God began to open up his mind and eyes as a Jewish person about the reality that the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 was in fact the fulfillment or or Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of that suffering servant. He says it became so clear to him in, in reading the prophecy that this was none other than Jesus of Nazareth that the scriptures was talking about. But he came to understand and to realize that unless the Spirit of God is at work opening the eyes and opening the heart of the non-believer, of the, of the non-Christian, then, then they see no connection between the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and the Jesus of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Because, because, he said, of the disgrace and the shame of the cross. I think this is one of the reasons why the Jewish leaders not only requested but demanded that Jesus be crucified. See, rather than just being banished or rather than than just being punished in some other way, they demanded they be crucified because they wanted that stigma of shame to be associated with Jesus to, to put an end to those that would be followers of Jesus. Philip Yancey tells a story about a family in Paraguay. The doctor, this, this father, spoke against the military regime because of its uh, human rights uh, 
abuses and the local police to, to, to uh, just pay this father back, to get revenge on this father, arrested his teenage son, put him in prison, beat him up, tortured him, ultimately put him to death. The enraged townspeople, when they found out about this, wanted to turn the boy's funeral into a protest march, but the father had something else in mind. And so what he did was he displayed his son's body as it was found in jail, naked, scarred, burned, battered, and broken. Not in a coffin, as the townspeople walked by, not in a coffin, but in the blood-soaked mattress that was found in the prison cell. I thought about that. I said, isn't that what God did to display the gross injustice, the gross demonstration of man's wickedness, but in the same process, we see not only the world in which we live in, we also see at the cross the God who made this world. That's what Calvary is all about, the sacrificial, unconditional love of God, which is far harder for us to wrap our minds around than merely God creating this universe and speaking it into existence. If any of us could kind of look from the outside looking in, maybe hearing this for the first time or, 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 or maybe being like an angel looking at this for the first time with curiosity or, or coming from some other planet, I think one of the first questions that we would want to ask is, who did this to, to God's son? Who killed God's son? I think there's several answers to that question. Who killed Jesus? First, from a purely historical point of view, we, we, we can conclude that it, was, that it was the religious leaders together with Herod and Pilate, Pontius Pilate and the Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus. It was men that, that crucified Jesus. From a heavenly point of view, it was God the Father who did not spare his own son. It was God the Father who sent his son to be the, the covering for, for a man's sins. From a heavenly point of view, we can say it was God who by his predetermined counsel and foreknowledge arranged every single detail. Nothing was left to chance. Nothing is ever left to chance. From another point of view, from Jesus' own point of view, remember he said, no man takes my life from me. I have the power to lay down my life and I have the power to take it up again. No, this is voluntary. No, no one has greater love than this in Jesus than to lay down his life for his friends. And that's what he did. But there's another perspective on who killed Jesus. And for that, I, I go to uh, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, and I quote what he said. He said, "'Twas you, my sins, my cruel sins, his chief tormentors were. Each of my cries became a nail, and the unbelief, the spear." My sins were the scourges which lacerated those blessed shoulders and crowned with thorns his bleeding brow. I cried, crucify him, crucify him. Who killed Jesus? He asked, I did. You did. We all did. The victim of sin and injustice, but the voluntary substitution for sin. Isaiah 53 verse 4 says, he took up our griefs and he carried our sorrows. He took up our griefs. He, 
did something. He initiated the taking up of our griefs. It literally means that he lifted our grief and our sorrow from us. He lifted them from us. You know, Jesus is the only man in human history who has chosen to die. None of us have that choice. Unless the Lord comes before we die, we will die. There is no question about that. The moment we are born, we begin to die. That, that process, that work of death is at work in us. We have an appointment with death. We know that. But Jesus did not because he did not sin. Therefore, death had no authority or power over him. Therefore, he's the only one in human history that had the choice. And he chose to die for us, as us, so that we might live. But I'm still answering the, the, the question, what could be worse than the pain of the cross? Yes, the shame of the cross, but there's something even worse than the shame of the cross. That's why I said this is in two parts that I give you this answer. And I believe the answer is found in the words that came from the cross. It's the word of, of dereliction. It's the words of, of abandonment. What, what Jesus felt in his soul, the agony that Jesus experienced emotionally and in, the, and in the realm of his soul was beyond anything that he was suffering physically. He said this, according to Matthew 27, verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic for, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not uncommon. It was not uncommon for someone who was being crucified in such excruciating pain and torment to, to curse and to, and to yell and to scream, to scream at those that were there, to scream at your, your, your executioners. But this is not the scream of somebody who's experiencing pain. This is rather the cry of somebody who's experiencing anguish, the anguish of abandonment. This is something Jesus has never known before. And in many ways, this is our holy ground upon which we remove, at least mentally and emotionally, our shoes. Here's a statement that I, I want you to consider. Nothing done to his body by men can compare to what was done to his soul by God. Nothing done to his body by men can be compared to what was done to his soul by God. You see, it's one thing to feel the lash of a soldier's whip. It's another thing to feel the lash of the wrath of eternal death from the hands of a holy God. I can't remember exactly who it was, but I, I, was, I was watching this video debate some time ago. It was a couple of well-known people uh, in, in Christianity and a couple of atheists who were, de who were debating. And, and one of them made the statement, I'll never forget the statement, and it, and it was something like, if, if you want me to believe this, they said in essence, then, then Jesus dying at the cross was the, was the very worst case of parental child abuse. Listen, I, I know that Isaiah 53, 10 says this, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He put him to grief. He has put him to grief. Isaiah 53 in the NIV says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. But I want you to know that the father took no pleasure in the death or the suffering of his son. 
The pleasure that Isaiah is speaking about there in that translation, maybe a poor translation, a better understanding would be is that the father was completely satisfied with the sacrifice that his son was providing and satisfied with the outcome of what would be the result of that. About a month or so ago, I was coming out of a 7-Eleven. I haven't bought a Newsday. I can't tell you how many years it's been since I bought a Newsday, but and for different reasons, but, but uh, there was a photo uh, of the front page that caught my attention, and I, and I said to myself, I, I've got to, I've got to I, got, I find out what the story is behind this photo. You know, they say that a photo is worth a thousand words. I needed to know what the story was. I saw the anguish in this man's face who was being comforted, if you could see it, there are, there are two Marines to his right. There's a Marine behind him, and there's a family member to his left. And I needed to know what the story was behind the anguish on this man's face. So the headline of the paper read, Farewell to a Long Island Son. You may have read the story about um, Lance Corporal Greg Buckley. Let me just read a small portion for you. It says, family, friends, fellow Marines and strangers moved by his sacrifice bid farewell yesterday to Lance Corporal Greg Buckley Jr., a Long Island son who lost his life a half a world away. More than a thousand people filled St. Agnes Cathedral where still more packed the sidewalk outside, standing silently as Marines in dress uniform carried the coffin. Some wiped away tears, others held hands over their hearts. The solemn procession in Rockville Center included bagpipes, a fire truck, and more than 100 motorcycles. Inside the cathedral, the sobs of mourners echoed over vaulted ceilings. The funeral mass for the Marine killed August 10th in southern Afghanistan capped more than a week of intense grief for the Buckley family and the tight-knit Oceanside community he grew up in. I quote his father. He said, I could never be prouder of anyone in my life. He's more man than me, more man than anyone that I know, said Greg Buckley Sr., who choked up when he took the podium to say a few words at the service. I have to accept the fact that the Lord took my son for a reason. I don't know about you, but when I read the story and I saw the the grief on this father's face, I don't know if when the Son of God was being crucified, when Jesus was suffering so horrifically, when the abandonment of the father turning away from his son and when Jesus experienced that, I, I don't know Is it possible that that angels gather around the throne of God the way that these gather around this father's broken heart? I don't know. I don't have the answer for that. But I I know my father's heart. I know my heart. I know what I would be experiencing. I know that the God whom we serve is not an emotionless God. Where do you think emotions came from in in the first place? But I also know that anybody who could make a statement such as, This is the worst case of child abuse. Doesn't understand 
the cross or doesn't understand the sacrifice or even the sacrifice of a family and a father who, who knows that there was one who was, who was, in his own words, a better man than me, who had given so much. Jesus Christ has given so much. And I, and I, and I think that the father was satisfied in the act of courage and in the act of love and dedication, in his obedience to the father, but also in his love for the bride. The anguish here before us is the cry, my God, my God. What I want you to notice is that Jesus never referred to God. He never prayed to God saying God. He always prayed. 21 instances in the New Testament where Jesus prayed, Abba, Father. But here he doesn't call God by his name, Father. He calls him God. He says, God, why, why is that? Why the change? Because I believe that in this moment, Jesus realized that his relationship between himself and God was that he was the sinner now in the sinner's place, that it was no longer the intimacy of relationship between father and son, but rather the judicial punishment that was being laid upon him had severed that relationship in some unknowable degree in, in, in my part, in, in our part. But what I also want you to recognize and notice is that what Jesus didn't say, he didn't say, oh God, oh God. He didn't say, God, God, why have you forsaken me? He said, my God, my God. It was as, as if God was pulling away from Jesus. Jesus was clinging to his father. Basically, what I, what I think Jesus was saying was, you're still my God. I still trust in you or in the words of Peter that he committed himself to the one who judges justly. When he was reviled, he reviled not again, but he committed himself. This is not a cry of distrust. This is a cry of, of entrusting himself to God. This is, this is not the unbelief of a, of, a, of a rebel. Rather, this is the submission of one who's come underneath the yoke that the Father has laid upon him. The question of why was not because there were doubts in his mind. This is something he never experienced before. He was perplexed. He was confused. This feeling that I have, this sensation that I have, this separation between Jesus, the Son of God, the God-man, and God the Father is totally, nothing prepared him for this. Not even the great sweat of blood that, that, that would falling to the ground in Gethsemane, prepared him for this. Gethsemane was a window into what he was to endure, but, but, but this, is, this is the fullness of the wrath of eternal punishment that Jesus was enduring for us. Here, here are so many cosmic paradoxes that it's hard for us to fully comprehend them all. First of all, at the cross, God was displaying his hostility toward us because Jesus is our substitute. So he was displaying his hostility toward us, but at the same time, God was loving us because he had provided a substitute for us. Here's the amazing thing is that God who is immutable, that means he cannot change, right? It's impossible for God to possibly change. The, the unity between the Father, Son, and Spirit was unbreakable, but yet in some measure, some way, there was a severing of relationship between Father and Son. He was forsaken 
forsaken, abandoned, dereliction took place. He is the source of life. In him we live and move and have our being, but yet somehow here, here is the son of God whose life is taken from him. And that is hard for us to fully comprehend. And while we could say, you know, bottom line is this, is that, is that while, while, while the suffering is over, the victory is certain. Jesus is no longer in Gethsemane. The agony is way past. But what remains behind is the victory of the cross and the blessings that have followed ever since. Think about it. The, the crown of thorns has been replaced by many crowns. The, the, the nails and the spear has been replaced by a, a scepter by which he has all power and authority in heaven and in earth. And he still is, is, is blessing each time another seed of Adam is pulled like a brand out of the fire. Another victory for the cross is accomplished. But I want you to know this morning, what I want you to take away is this, is that the shame of the cross and the pain of abandonment was worth it all. The shame of the cross and the, uh, the pain of ab- the anguish of abandonment was worth it all. Listen, that's not my opinion. That's Isaiah's opinion. L- l- listen to it now with fresh ears. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and coerce him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring that is his children and will prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. For by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and I will divide the spoils among the strong because he poured out his life unto death. What's that saying? It's saying that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What's the descendants he's talking about here? His offspring, his children, that's us. That's, if you're a believer this morning, you are, you are the very reason that Jesus says it was worth it all. It was worth the pain. It was worth the anguish. You're worth it all. The shame of the cross and the pain of the cross and the abandonment was worth it all. See, I think that's so practical, that that verse I shared a little while ago from verse four, that he lifted our griefs and sorrows from us and took it upon himself. See, I believe Jesus wants to do that again this morning here in this place. See, some of us, and and I know this because I've, I've spoken to to many people over the years, they carry with them guilt and shame. And, and, and some of the guilt and shame is not their own. It comes in families. Sometimes it's, it's the guilt of fathers that have been passed down upon their children, the shame of their father's actions and the consequences. You know, we, we, we don't put somebody in jail because their father committed a crime, but the consequences of their father's crime, of somebody being incarcerated, somebody being put in jail, the child bears the consequences of that and the shame of that. And for so many of us, there are maybe even things that we've done in our own lives that if I put up on the screen secrets that only you know about, it would be a shame for you. But I want you to know this, that Jesus Christ has taken the shame off of us 
because he was shamed. He's taken the, 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 the risk of abandonment off of us because he himself was abandoned for us so that we could, we could say this, like the writer of Hebrews, we could boldly say, he will never, never, never leave us. Five negatives are in that sentence. He will never leave us nor forsake us so that we can boldly say, the Lord is my help. Are you facing some situation right now where, where, where you're feeling the weight maybe of consequences of past actions? I want you to know that the guilt of it and the shame of that has nothing to do with you, that Jesus took that from you and he wants to set you free this morning. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you this morning for the, for the cross. I thank you, Lord, for the victory that came as a result of Jesus having suffered for us as us. And the consequences, we, we, I spoke about the consequences a little while ago of someone's crime, but the consequences of your obedience has brought blessing to us. The consequences of Adam's sin brought, brought shame to our race, but the consequences of your obedience brings righteousness. You have, you have donated your righteousness to us. You've become the donor of a righteousness that is as good as God itself because it is the very righteousness of God. And we thank you this morning that no longer does shame or guilt infect us, that the power of sin, the disease of sin has been healed by the bleeding stripes of Jesus. And, and we, we celebrate that this morning. And while we're just preparing, if you're here this morning and you've never had this transaction take place, what's the transaction? It's faith, it's believing, it's receiving, believe and live. If you'll believe this morning that Jesus died in your place, that he died for you and as you, then, then you are set free. The father looks at that and says, that's sufficient for me. His suffering is sufficient for me. His agony is sufficient for me. If you'll exchange that as the substitution for your sin, Jesus will give you his righteousness. You start that this morning with a simple heart's expression of Jesus come into my life, be the Lord of my life, be the savior of my life. I receive the gift of eternal life in the grace of God. Father, we just want to thank you this morning for this simple fact that Jesus Christ paid the debt he didn't owe. I owed a debt that I could never pay, but he paid the debt in full. It is finished, Jesus said. And we all said amen. Amen.